welcome to the Pseudopreneur Show. I'm your host, Tegan Thomas, and today we have a super fantastic guest. And not only is he in the U.S. for the first time, or only for a couple of weeks, he's from Canada, which is super cool. I've not had a Canadian guest yet. Um, he attended Ivy Business School at Western University. He graduated in 2019, and he's going to be owning Human, which is a men's skincare and grooming products. And he plans to launch in January of 2020. His name is Umar El Babli. So, yep. Umar, it's great to have you on here. Yeah, pleasure to be on uh, on the show with you, Tegan. I'm excited. Um, yeah, let's get started. Um, okay, so I want to know where did you get your idea for human? Where did that what popped into your head? What made you want to do that? Yeah, so it starts with a little bit of a story. <clears throat> So I was in business school and I originally went to business school um, from 2018 or 2017 to when I just graduated a few months ago, the end of the beginning of 2019. Um, I went to business school to do something entrepreneurial, but I had no idea that I would find it. Um, and it was in my third year of my undergrad where there was a moment in time, this was January 2018. I was in a sh uh, shopper's drug mart with my girlfriend, which is like, for those of, for those, for the American listeners here, that would be like a Rexall equivalent in Canada. And she was buying a foundation at the time, so a makeup product. And as she was browsing the shelves, I'm, I'm browsing with her and I was starting to realize, you know, there's thousands of products here and not one of them is positioned towards men. And it would be great if I could cover up my under eye bags. That was the first, the most immediate thoughts that came to my mind. And then I kind of realized that there was a few kind of barriers to me getting that done. Like I didn't, I didn't feel like there was a brand that resonated with my needs, especially as a male. Um, I had no idea where to start, what products to even use. Um, so that was kind of like a hurdle. I, at the time, I wasn't really comfortable purchasing the products in the store. Um, and it was more of just a you know, getting past the kind of stigmas and stereotypes around men investing in their appearance in that way. Um, that was something that I had to kind of internally battle. And that was a really interesting challenge for me. And thank God I've gotten over that hurdle today and I can comfortably walk into Sephora and I love it. It's an amazing experience. Um, and so I want to be, I want to enable other men to be able to do that and to just, you know, if they have some sort of concern about their facial imperfections, that they can address it. Um, and that problem in particular, changing social norms and constructs around men taking care of themselves, is what got me obsessed with with human today. Um, and that's my that's my ultimate goal to shift that and then provide men with the best toolkit um, to put their best face forward. And when did you know exactly that you wanted to make this into a business? I mm -hmm. mean, given the circumstances, you wanted to have that ability to purchase what you want to do to make you feel good about yourself without feeling like other people are judging you or watching mm -hmm. you in a weird way um so human is is for that but how did you know that you wanted to make that a business that you could profit off of as well as make people feel better about themselves and more confident in general definitely so when i thought of this idea we in in my uh is my in my business program at school it was like perfect timing so we were just getting intro to a major course that happened that starts in our final year of, my, our, of university so we got intro to it the year before um and this was around february 2018 then the next school year started in september 
Um, and basically the entire course is you get, you get together with a group of individuals, you have a six, um, a team of six, and you put together a really, really detailed business plan. You do a ton of research, including, you know, primary and secondary research. You build a really, really strong business case. And at the end of the, you know, the end of the project, um, so come November time, you actually have an opportunity to pitch in front of a network of real investors in Canada. So timing was really the element that um, helped me bring this to fruition because I thought of the concept and I had no idea how to execute. But then I was like, okay, amazing. I have this opportunity to try it during school. If things go poorly, that's okay because it's just a school project. If things go really well, then I can take what I get from this project um, and run with it after. So I did that with my group. Um, and we got really, really, really good feedback at the end of the project. Um, we had like the highest mark and we, we got a bunch of investor investors who wanted to, um, make commitments. And then it was kind of that point. So come early December, I was like, okay, this is great. All these investors are interested. doesn't really validate the concept, but, but it validates that I should do something with this. And this is really special. I should continue. And so from then on to April may even kind of today i've been continually raising capital and i was able to um secure bolt here in san francisco to be my lead investor with the pre-seed but it was throughout that process really the november december time when i got that validation that i should follow through with this and, and make it a, a a really impactful business okay cool that's a that's a good way to take advantage of your situation. Yeah, definitely. And so what was the process like jumping into something like this? Of course, it started out as a school project, but whenever mm -hmm. you realize that this could be legitimate and you're ready to take it to the market and have clients, what mm -hmm. has that been like? Yeah. So uh, it really started with a lot of research on how men are currently feeling today. So we as a group, we started doing surveys and interviews and we, we would survey like hundreds of men and we interviewed a bunch of them. And at the end of the day, we just felt that there's so many guys out there that were going through the exact same motions that I was when I was in the store at Shoppers and I was having those thoughts about, I want to cover up my under eye bags, but I don't know where to start. There's no brand, um, et cetera. And we really tried to let the numbers tell the story, especially at the really early days because the investors that we were originally speaking to were so detached from the Gen Z and, and millennial demographic that to be fully transparent, it was like four white men who were the, the youngest one was like 35. And, and there was one woman in the room who was um, in her forties. So she was really empathetic, which is fantastic. Um, but the others have, have just never, probably never even thought you know, in their entire lifetime of wearing a makeup product. Um, and so that was a interesting, interesting transition. Um, but I mean, they, they ended up being very interested um, after the pitch. So, so the process started with tons of research on that and understanding, you know, what is it going to take to bring down these norm to break down the social norms? How do we, at the end of the day, make this category that it is, apparently in need by these two age demographics approachable for men so they can actually comfortably go out and buy the products. That's, that's what the initial process was really about. Now that I have Bolt on board and I'm here incubating in their office, 
it's more so executing on all those theories and hypotheses that we've had. So um, with this round, what we're trying to do is, um, you know, one of the arguments that we make, one of the hypotheses that we have is that to make this happen, um, you need a really compelling brand and story. So we're, we're contracting a phenomenal brand agency to bring us to market um, and to, to make human really compelling at launch and, and have a really professional execution so men can be interested and excited about trying these products. That's okay. what the process is focused on today. All right, that's good. And has it been difficult to like get started all the way with transitioning from it being just a school project into having it be a huge investment of your time and energy? Mm -hmm. The transition hasn't been difficult only because I knew from day one, this was January 2018, that this was something I wanted to build, whether it was going to happen you know, now or later, it was something that I wanted to eventually build. And the fact that we had that opportunity to, to do the school project was really just a facilitator for me to help me get it done. And so it enabled me to take action as soon as possible, right after university, um, and to jump into this. But that was the plan the whole time. So the transition was, wasn't difficult. And, and it started like so early on, I pretty much like checked out of school second semester and or first and second semester of my final year and was really just dedicating all my time to to building human and to ensuring that it was going to happen but I did graduate I did okay I did well enough to graduate okay cool cool and so your target market is men is there like a specific demographic of men that you were trying to appeal to yeah so What's interesting is from the data that we've collected and going out and speaking to a ton of men um, in, the, in the hundreds, what's really interesting is, you know, it's not just what most people would think, which is you'd be selling to, you know, fashionistas or people in the LGBTQ plus community who use this for identity. Um, the market is actually so much more broader than that. And really, I think what we're seeing is for millennials and Gen Z, you have these demographics where the term metrosexual is really just phasing out. And just on average, these men are investing in their appearance at an unprecedented rate. And these makeup products are really just the next step in their repertoire. Mm -hmm. So at the end of the day, you know, it is going to be, you know, guys between the age range of 16 to 25 who are going to be the most immediate customers. They're likely somewhat into fashion or they're, they're into skincare or something like that. Um, you know, they go out, they're probably dating, they may be in some client-facing careers, whether that's being a waiter um, or some sort of consultant within professional services. Um, but really, there's, there's almost like, on a really high level, there's really no discrimination in between the, the subcategories of potential customers. So we're trying to make this a mass market product, and I think it can be, and I think it's, um, it's a definitely a really big challenge. But at the end of the day, our goal is just to help men look and feel their best. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and going mass market is kind of, kind of the way to, the way to do that and to really, really shift culture. So, you know, that's the way that we're kind of seeing it right now. And there's definitely, like I said, tons of subcategories within that, but I don't want to like pigeonhole ourselves into one very, very specific niche customer right now. That is really interesting to me because like based off of history, we've seen different periods of like whenever women get really into beauty and it's like started mm. out with only the high class and then it went down to low class back to high class and there was nothing mm -hmm. 
it's just all transitional with women and like it also makes me think of how heels became um a feminine thing um Mm -hmm. whenever they were actually made for men to make them show off their wealth yeah and uh or whenever they were working as a butcher so they didn't get blood on their feet like things like it's just so interesting how things over history can change and i'm i'm glad that you are trying to take a different approach to make men feel the same as women do whenever we are able to put on our makeup every single day and make us feel good about ourselves because sometimes like men it's it's scary to think that there's stigma around it and there is stigma around it and Mm -hmm. it's not necessary exactly no i totally agree and the heels discussion is not is not different from makeup like thousands of years ago it was actually men in um particularly really high class individuals like in Egypt who started wearing things like eyeliner. That's like really where makeup started. Yeah. Um, and then it just transitioned into what most people would categorize as more feminine products. Um, but at the end of the day, like what I, what I just don't agree with in, in today's society is that they're only for one. And I think that is, it's becoming a lot more accepted and you see the same transition in terms of fashion today where you know men are actually starting to wear things like heels and I honestly think guys look great in heels it's just it's just part of the story that you want to tell as an individual the identity one that you want to present Um, and at the end of the day I think everyone should be comfortable wearing what they think looks great and makes them feel amazing and that's it and that's really like truly humans um, kind of mission or or end goal is to create this global culture where men can finally invest in their appearance and to make any sort of visual um, and sort of mental decision that they want without having any backlash from, from society. Right. How do you plan on marketing these products to potential clients if you're able to share that information? Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally. Uh, I need to be careful with how I, how I approach this because I don't want to give off too, too much info. Right, right, right. Um, what I would say is we are exploring channels that are dominated by the male audience, especially younger men. So there's a few social media platforms um, that are heavily dominated by male users. Mm-hmm. We're using those platforms, and they're not really the ones that you would traditionally think of today um, because they have so many users, and there's actually men who are interacting and chatting about male makeup products already on these platforms so we're doing we're using unconventional channels but our entire launch is based on being direct to customer via our our website so and the reason behind that is when we were chatting with men and we surveyed them there was a, a dominant um ask that men wanted to buy these products online because it is really just uh, kind of the first time they'll ever walk through this process. And they do still kind of feel a little bit uncomfortable walking into Sephora. Um, And so it makes sense to sell online, but even more importantly in these really early stages, when it's the first time they may ever use these products, selling online allows us to build a private narrative with the customer. Um, And so, you know, if you can imagine the sales funnel, they'd see one of our ads somewhere um, or one of our kind of organic media channels. They go directly to the website. They can see and read about the products um, and kind of 
make their own stories about them and, and start to really appreciate what they are and, and start thinking about making a purchase. And then, you know, they can digest it privately by themselves without feeling like society is judging them. That's amazing. It's really, really powerful to do, especially in a category where there is stigma around it. And so hymns serves as like a really good analog for this. That's kind of what they did. They took advantage of the, the private narrative of selling online um, and sold really stigmatized products. Um, and so we're, we're taking a page out of their book and exclusively marketing online and then having that funnel into our, our sales channels. And then um, in your opinion, what kinds of advertising perform best mm-hmm. with similar competitor businesses that have been around longer than you have? Yeah, so I'll use Hims as an analog for this just because they're targeting a very similar segment of men and they were selling a stigma, or they are still today, of course, selling a very stigmatized product that is, their best-selling product is their erectile dysfunction medications. They use a lot of paid media. Mm-hmm. A lot of it is online, but they're also, you know, they dominate subway stations in San Francisco, LA, New York, um, really in like all the metropolitan situa- uh, places within the U.S. Um, but they've also done really unique things like get into the bottom of men's urinals um and we think that they've they've done such a great job of of finding these little areas where they know guys are going especially like male washrooms for example of course it's going to be mostly guys um and when you're when you're doing your business the the only thing you really can do is look down and see their ads so they've done a fantastic job of finding these little niche areas where they can drive a lot of value and really connect with customers and so we're going to be doing um, similar things to them. Um, the only problem with it being, or the only problem that they kind of have um, that we may also run into is because these, this is a stigmatized category, it takes a lot of education. And that means that paid media is pretty much how we start the sales funnel, which makes it really expensive. Um, right. So that's, so they raise a significant amount of capital. Um, and we are also going through that process right now. Um, it's just kind of necessary to to go to market. Mm-hmm. I think that's interesting because what ran through my mind for something like whenever I think of advertisements that go towards men, I think of Old Spice commercials mm-hmm. and how they're dramatic, but also really like they're funny. I think they're so funny. Um, and then whenever I look at women's commercials for products, especially with like makeup or underwear things like that they are very serious and or sexy and it's it it's just weird to me <laughs> yeah everybody that's not like everyone's intention they just want to feel good about themselves but it's not necessarily for like other people if mm-hmm. that makes sense no you're totally right the tone of marketing to men is is so different from how products are marketed to women yeah there's actually a lot of research on this um and and some of it is you know contradicting each other but you know there's a lot of research just for example that says that men are more receptive to negative feedback the so an example for that would be like your under eye bags look terrible you should do something about that and women are more responsive to um you look great under like in your own skin um use this for like you know just a little touch up just enhance your your natural beauty um, and there's, there's nuances to that, of course, and it's all kind of rooted within psychology, but I totally agree. Like for men, there's, there's this really, really 
there's been a very strong tone of like let's let's portray our products in the most sexy way that comes off like super aggressive um and it's actually like not approachable like most men don't want to be they're, they're not usually buying like beauty products and stuff to be you know the sexiest guy on the street it's just so they can look a little bit better and feel better about themselves mm-hmm. and that's really the approach that we're taking is we're showing we're showing society we have this fleet of products that can help you look and feel your best and you know what that is normal you should have this option but to be realistic about it like you're not gonna you're not gonna be a model just wearing makeup products and stuff um, right. but that's totally okay it's just more so about you feeling more comfortable you feeling more confident um and and feeling like a better version of yourself so that's i really like the way you actually presented this question because that's exactly something that we've been thinking about and kind of changing how how companies in general right now are marketing towards men there's just so many times like now that i'm actually thinking about it yeah commercials aim towards men that are either really harsh or really funny and but like they crack at something that a lot of people like a lot of guys feel uncomfortable about so yeah they they have to buy that product to make them feel better yeah, no, you're totally right. And and maybe, you know, a lot of this uh, toxic masculinity has been a really hot topic lately, especially in the last year or two. And I think maybe a lot of it actually is kind of rooted in that of like, you know, especially some of the really old Old Spice commercials, they're, they're extremely, extremely masculine. When in reality, I think I read like a crazy stat that, you know, only like between five to 10% of men today actually resonate with how men are currently portrayed in the media. Like it they're just things come off hyper masculine and that's just not really how people live today and how people um or how men really associate with with their own identities um that's definitely not how i feel i don't feel like i'm super hyper masculine at all um and i don't really think i think it's a it's a bad it's a bad thing to relay onto someone i think you should be free to to live how how you please so cool because it's like society has changed and it it was always a thing like men have to bottle up their feelings they have to be stone hard cold or and that's it there's nothing else to it but like now you're you're more seen as people you're getting Mm -hmm. to be more like regular everyday people yeah and i think it's it's a it's great it's really good that society is continually um pushing the envelope in terms of you know what it means just to be human and to to interact together all on the same level i think it's necessary and men will be men will live i think much more at ease without the pressure of feeling like they have to be you know the macho man all the time which is really like nobody out there <laughs> right exactly <laughs> okay um we're going to move on to your experience with being a college student and working yeah. on this launch um, sure. So, I so you're you were just a general business major in college, is that correct? What correct. Okay. So, how do you feel like that helped or harmed your business idea mm-hmm. for human? Yeah. So at Ivy, we have a pretty unique business school structure. Um, so in your first two years of your undergrad in a four year program, you can study whatever you want, and then you apply to the business school at the in the middle of your second year, and if you are admitted you would start business school in your third and and you'd finish in your fourth year of your actual undergrad. So it's a two-year business program. Mm -hmm. Um, The first two years, I studied psychology and neuroscience. And the reason why is because I was obsessed with understanding human behavior and just understanding why, why humans do the things they do. And what I got really interested in was why do people buy products um, 
you know, what are the, what are the things that motivate them? Why would you buy one product over another? Um, and so I got like a little bit of that of understanding human behavior in my first two years, but I had no business foundation to back that up. Um, so it was great in terms of, you know, my own interests and it gave me a great background to design empathetically today as a founder, but I had no business skills to execute. So going to business school is great. Um, especially since it was such a condensed, intense program. Um, and I would only say that going to business school and having psych as a compliment, I mean, definitely that the, these two programs are the reason I am where I am today because it gave me structure, um, something I wouldn't have had if I didn't go to university at all mm-hmm. um, and have not. I mean, if I, if I continued in psychology, I also wouldn't have had the, the business acumen to execute, to go out and raise capital, to go pitch to, um, you know, some of the best investors in the country um, and, and make things happen. So it was extremely useful for me to, to study business. Um, yeah, that's what I would say. That's really cool. I've actually heard from a couple of guys that have been in business for a while, especially when I did an internship last year. They were like, hey psychology is really important in the business world and it's it doesn't change as frequently as business does and mm-hmm. um at my college they are starting to have us have required psychology classes in order for us to take some of our upper level business classes mm-hmm. and i think that's very important especially whenever you're thinking like it's a consumer market a big chunk of the time so you mm-hmm. have to know how to appeal to those consumers and if you don't understand how their brain works and you can't explain the data that you're getting from their answers, then you're not going to do as well of a job as marketing towards them or creating products that are better geared towards them. Yeah, you're totally right. And for me, like in my opinion, it doesn't matter whether you're selling a tech product or a makeup product or you're selling B2B or B2C. At the end of the day, there's someone's your customer. Right. And that someone is a human being. So it makes no sense to only focus on, you know, the financials or the, the really the, the business strategy and to forget that at the end of the day, your customer is what drives your business. So mm-hmm. it's really important to get some sort of knowledge around that um, and to build with that in mind. And my first year in psychology, I think, you know, some of the courses that I took, like, I think everyone should take Psych 101. It just allows you to be a more empathetic person and just to understand human beings. Um, so it's great that, that your school is putting that as an initiative for the business students, at least. Um, next question. Uh, what were some of the hardest things to keep up with while working on human and attending classes? <laughs> Loaded question, because human is all I worked on in my last year of university. Um, it's It's tough, you know, doing... Trying to go out and raise capital, especially venture capital, was extremely difficult while being in a really intensive program. Mm-hmm. So to be fully transparent, like like I said earlier, I really put school on the back burner and prioritized human, which was incredibly risky because I ultimately didn't get my first check until I graduated and it was just a few weeks after. Um, but for me, it was just the way to go and there's a lot of entrepreneurs who believe that school is unnecessary, but I think regardless of the program you're in, when you, when you're in an undergraduate program, you learn so much about life and you learn so much about yourself. And there's lots of skills you learn like organization skills, how to schedule, um, 
you'll kind of gain a work ethic that all translate into being a great entrepreneur. And I, I hate the word entrepreneur. I don't really consider myself an entrepreneur. I just consider myself a builder. Um, but it gives you discipline to then go and act if you were to do something entrepreneurial because you need discipline. The, the difference between school and being an entrepreneur is in school, it's very structured. You have someone telling you what to do 24 seven and that experience provides the discipline, but then it's up to you after school when you're the entrepreneur to build your own structure and then to act disciplinely accordingly. So that's kind of how I see the dynamic. Um, I was terrible at balancing that during, during my studies. I ended up making it work. It just came down to my priorities at the time. But some other things that were really challenging was balancing my relationship with my girlfriend and also spending time with friends and family. But I think what's really important is, you know, if you're doing something like this, if you're really going all in, whether it's something entrepreneurial or not, it doesn't really matter. Is to just be transparent about the about your situation to the people who really matter around you, like your family and your very close friends and, you know, true friends and family, people who really love you will be supportive of you regardless of what you're doing. And that's, that's the understanding that all my friends had. So I'm really fortunate to be surrounded by a great group of people. That's super interesting that you said that um, about the difference between the structure of school and the, um, the structure you have to create yourself for running a business. Mm -hmm. Um, Cause like I just graduated high school. Right. And mm -hmm. in high school, it was all like your teachers jumped out of your throat about anything. If you have something late, they will talk to you the very next morning. So you have to turn it in by the end of the week or he gives you your points. But in my three whole weeks of attending college, um, I've had professors, they'll just say it in class. And then if I forget, then I forget and I don't get the points and that's totally on me. Yeah. And it's like an interesting transitional period because they do tell us what needs to be done but then it's on our own terms and our own time to determine how when and how well we do it so if I have an idea for a business that I might want to start someday I'm not sure um, but I think that'll be much different to actually have 110% complete control over what's happening and yeah. it's a good transition from that, especially whenever like being an adult is way different than being a college student and way different from being a high school student. Totally. Yeah. There's a, there's a transition period then. And, and for anyone, you know, transitioning from university to entrepreneurship, there's, there's a similar transition. that's just kind of more, more severe and more exacerbated, right. but um, if you kind of draw those parallels, you know, you'll realize like in high school and between your first week of university, you're probably like, this is crazy. I can't do this, but you get through it. So mm -hmm. that's, uh, that's kind of what you have, would have to keep telling yourself after, after school and you do something entrepreneurial, you're, you're going to be okay. It's just, you know, it's really just up to you to take what you learn, take all the discipline, um, the structure that you, you had during school and to just kind of support yourself around that. And were there any sacrifices that you had to make in order to stay on track? And if so, what were they? Yeah, I 100% had to sacrifice my grades. <laughs> it was just, <laughs> um, so in, in, my, in, my, in my program, attendance was mandatory and you were marked on attendance. So I, I missed a lot of classes, um, mostly from pitching out of the city. Uh, so my grades suffered, but, you know, in the grand scheme of things, I, I don't think you're defined by a number, especially your, your college grades. They will mean absolutely nothing two years out of college so right that suffered and other than that um 
like clubs, free time, anything like that, that you were just like, I can't do this anymore. Yeah, I, I, I definitely had to prioritize what I was doing. So I, I did pretty, I withdrawed from, you know, all the clubs that I didn't think added too much value or that I was really into. So I did stay a part of one club. I, I founded a charity at my university and I was really engaged with that. Um, and I had to be disciplined about balancing that with human and my studies. Um, but I loved it. So that was, that was easy and not easy. It was, it was manageable, I would say, but it wouldn't be manageable if I kept, you know, some of the little things going on um, that I was doing prior to, to human. Uh, so it's really just all about prioritizing and, and focusing on what you, what you really want to work on, what you really love when you're working towards something like building a company, because you don't have time for everything. You truly right. don't. Um, and you need to be realistic about, about that time is, arguably the most important asset you have. And how did this idea for a human change how you saw and used the rest of your college experience? It helps me, it helped me appreciate my degree more. A lot of what I have applied to human today, especially like formulating a pitch and being able to speak to high profile individuals, mm -hmm. I learned all that in school. So, you know, during school, it was kind of, there was, there was moments where I thought it was school is taking up way too much time maybe I should just drop out and work on human but if I did then I wouldn't have built this skill set that is really relevant right um so I only see in hindsight where a lot of the skills I learned in university became applicable to being an entrepreneur to being an entrepreneur but in the moment it was, it was not so much that fact and did you use any resources from your school to expand your team or do anything else that would be beneficial for the business um I use the, we, we have a business plan structure. It's called like the, the, the Ivy New Venture Project nine-step um, business plan. I use that to formulate the case for human, which then turned into our pitch deck. From there was more of the soft skills that I learned throughout university that became really valuable, like speaking to people, communicating properly, learning how to pitch, um, being organized. Less so the the hard skills. Like to be honest, I don't remember like anything from a lot of like my finance courses and stuff. Right. Um, but I don't think that's what university is really about. That's not the the hard skills you will continually learn and practice when you need to. But the true value is all the soft skills you get at a university. All right. Well, I have one last question. Cool. Um, what are your top three pieces of advice to other students that are entrepreneurs or want to be entrepreneurs? Yeah, this is definitely a question I should have prepared for because <laughs> it's a great one for those who are listening. <clears throat> so the top three, I, I got this one piece of advice before and I, I thought it was so weird when the person told me, but it's become more true every single day since I've heard it. The first piece of advice is don't take everyone's advice. <laughs> because you're going to get so many conflicting opinions from everyone out there. You know, let's just say if you were to pitch, you know, a business plan to a hundred investors, every single investor is going to have a different idea of how you should operate the business and how you should execute. But it's your job to, to identify what the best way to execute is and what you would relay your vision and to build that as opposed to just building for what everyone else's needs. Right. So you should definitely be receptive, receptive to feedback always um, and think, but 
be receptive to all feedback, but think very critically about it and, and try to make sense of, you know, does this really apply? Is this good advice? Maybe find a mentor um, who can kind of fact check or double check the, the advice that you get that you're kind of struggling to digest. Um, but, but don't just do something because someone else says that it's, that it's right. Um, the second piece of advice I would give and this, I'm not really sure if this is, is advice or I don't know how to frame this as, you know, within one sentence, but success lives right next door to failure. So the example that I'll give is, you know, when I was, when I was pitching, I was not applying for jobs um, in the later stages. I was in the early stages, didn't get any job offers. And it was difficult because all my friends were getting really lucrative jobs at Goldman Sachs, Bain, McKinsey. Um, and that was really difficult to kind of process because I was going a totally different route that was incredibly risky. And odds are I wouldn't have been statistically successful, but I kept telling myself, you know, this is something I really believe in. I'm really passionate in. And if I just keep pushing, someone's going to believe in me. And at one point I had like literally $5 in my bank account. I had no job offers. It was past school. I had already finished my last exam. I had no idea what my future was going to look like. And I was still going out and pitching my, my concept, pitching human. Um, and it was in, it's in those times when you really have to test your character and push 110% to make things happen. And I think for those who can do that, um, there's a high chance of something, something special coming out of it. There's just still always an element that you, you may continually fail. But um, if you just keep trying, something might click eventually. So that's kind of like what I was telling myself throughout the process. And something did happen. That's when I connected with Bolt, um, which was amazing. Mm-hmm. so just really push push yourself in the times that it's that it's necessary and are arguably the hardest and you think you think it's it's the worst time in your life um because it's not going to get any worse than that so you might as well give it your all the last piece of advice i would give is to embrace failure i have failed a million times in my life i'm going to fail a million more probably way more than that um but what's most important is that you fail, some, you fail at something once and you don't make that mistake ever again. The reason failing is so important is because the lessons you will get out of failing are so valuable and most of the time more valuable than the cost of that mistake that you originally made. Right. Um, that is just so key. And even if it's something as so simple as, you know, in the early stages of when I was pitching, I used to get super, super, super nervous um, and I messed up a few pitches and I, I was fumbling in my communication. Um, and I was like, okay, well, why don't I write down after every single pitch, what my weak points were and try to work on them and to build a plan to work on them. Um, and my pitch became like more fully fleshed and coherent, um, and concise as I continually practice, but also focused on the really, really weak points. So I used to be terrible at intros and then I would go online and figure out that investors love stories. Mm -hmm. So I tailored the intro of my pitch um, accordingly. And I I start with the the story I gave you earlier of walking into a shopper's drug mart with my girlfriend. That was really um, kind of pivotal. It gets, it got investors engaged really, really early on, but I only learned that through failing and trying something else. So 
Right. That would be the last piece of advice that I would give to anyone looking to venture into the entrepreneurial world. Okay, awesome. That's it. That's a wrap up of our show. So, Omar, thank you so much for being on the Studentpreneur Show. Is there anything else you'd like to add? Look out for, for Human. The website's behuman.com. Shameless plug. And uh, yeah, I would just say good luck to anyone willing to give entrepreneurship a go. It's definitely one of the hardest things you'll ever do, but extremely rewarding. Um, and if you're listening to this podcast, you're probably thinking about it. So um, good for you. And you, you might be able to change the world. Just don't forget that. Right. Guys, make sure you look out for that in Human in January of 2020. It'll be super exciting. And I can get Umar um, at that time whenever the website is up. I can put it in the link. So if you're listening later on, it's not September anymore. Yes. You can still look into it. Awesome. Cool. Thanks so much for having me, Tegan. Yes. Thank you so much. Have a great day, guys. Thank you.